In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're celebrating All Saints and All Souls Day uh, from November 1st and 2nd. We have uh, this week in order to continue to celebrate those feasts. And they're so important for us to take a break here at the very end of this long green season to remember those uh, saints and souls who have gone before us. We cannot know who we are unless we know who they are and the faith that they passed on to us. It's a very essential aspect of Christian living and of Christian life that we understand time and the way that we fit into time and into human history. There are several ways that we can understand time. The pagan understanding of time is circular. Pagans uh, from all over, uh, native peoples from all over the world have a circular understanding of time. That is, there's no progress. Uh, it's a deep sense of destiny or fate uh, that your uh, life is fixed in some kind of a, of a pattern that you can't break out of. There's no progress. And so there's not going to be any attention to science or technology or to new understanding because we're in this fixed uh, destiny or fate cycle. This is a very um, horrible, entrenched kind of way of seeing the world that um, for many people is still with us today, that overwhelming sense of fate. And then there is uh, the progressive understanding of time that's been with us at least since the day of these days of the Enlightenment, if not longer, and that is uh, that we are in progress and that we're always moving forward. This is a linear understanding of time, that we have a past, present, and a future, and that this future is kind of sailing on into the future with uh, a kind of, um, a kind of a change uh, that's always occurring, um, a kind of evolution, if you will, that human beings are changing and evolving and that we have new ways of living and new ways of understanding that are not based on the past and that we're moving into this purely forward uh, trajectory. This, again, is very dangerous because it does not have room for understanding uh, humanity nor uh, God's role in uh, humanity. In Christian time, we understand time as a spiral. It's a spiral that is uh, repeating a pattern while moving forward. So we do understand ourselves moving forward in time, that we have a, a way to come into new knowledge and new understanding, and this is why in the church it's always been so important to embrace science and technology. We have the understanding that we have rational minds that can perceive the creation, that can perceive the creator and what he does by observing the world around us, and that we can come into new knowledge and understanding, while understanding that the human condition is uh, the same as it always has been, that Humanity is unchanged from the time of the Garden of Eden. That when we stepped out of the Garden of Eden, the fall and what it means for us and for our pride and our sin has not changed. Nor has God and His call to us towards righteousness. The Lord's call towards righteousness and towards justice and mercy. His call towards saving us and wanting to dwell with us has also not changed. And so that pattern of our sin and of God's salvation and reaching out to us to to abide with us and to dwell with us is not changing. And so it's important for us to see that spiraling of history and for uh, our being able to look back and to see the ways that the Lord has acted in the past. And so it's essential for us as Christians to have a historical understanding and a historical grounding in the scriptures and in the history of salvation. And this is why it's been so dangerous for us, especially over the last several hundred years, for this very powerful progressive movement that's wanted continually to remove books from Scripture. 
the progressives would have us end of the Old Testament at Malachi and then begin it with Matthew. So we would end with Malachi at about 500 BC with the return of Israel to uh, Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. And then all of a sudden we're reading about Christ in Jerusalem and everybody's speaking Greek and the Romans are in charge. And you might turn the page there and say, what happened? Well, what happened is that the books of the Deuterocanon and the Apocrypha have been removed um, from many worship communities so that we have a groundless understanding of the history of the peoples of God. It's essential that we have these books, that we have the Deuterocanon, the Apocrypha, books like the Ecclesiasticus that teach us uh, this history of salvation and that emphasize for us our role in community, the role of us having fathers and mothers of faith who have gone before us and the importance of them teaching the faith and the importance of us passing on that faith to those who come after us. Um, we do not want to confuse Ecclesiasticus, this book written in about 180 BC with Ecclesiastes written by Solomon. Ecclesiasticus is written by a professor of theology by the name of Jesus ben Sirach in about 180 BC in Jerusalem in the theological school there. And he's writing to the diaspora. The Jews had been in diaspora since the Babylonian exile. Many had never left Egypt and uh, Europe and uh, Asia Minor since the time of the exile. And so there are Jews all over the known world. And they're coming and making pilgrimage to Jerusalem on occasion, which we read about in Pentecost, right? About Jews coming to uh, Jerusalem for Pentecost. But they're living in these diaspora communities, these small groups of synagogues all across the known world. And that's who Jesus ben Sirach is writing to. He's reminding them of who they are and how they're related to God. And he's not telling them because of where you live or because of your blood lineage. He's talking to them about a, a history that's so much more important, about the giving of uh, the life of virtue. And so he names two very important groups. The first one that he names is those who ruled. In Ecclesiasticus chapter 44, verse 3, he says, There were those who ruled in their kingdoms and were men renowned for their power. He says they were leaders. Down in verse 6, he says they were rich men, furnished with resources. So who's he talking about here? He's talking about King David. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about the, the great royal prophets like Isaiah and saying that they had these resources and that they're famous people and that we all know who they are. We might consider these saints that we have on the walls a similar kind of people. They are famous, right? They are known generation after generation. We know who St. Mary Magdalene is, right? We know the apostles. Uh, we know these great writers and historians of the church. And so it's important for us to know them and to recognize what it is that they've taught. <clears throat> and then he moves on in verse 8 and he says, There are some of them who have left a name so that their praises are declared. Some of them have left a name. And then in verse 9 he says, And there are some who have no memorial. These people that taught us the faith will not be remembered the way we remember them in another generation. 20 or 30 years, nobody will know what their favorite music was, how they danced, who they loved. They will be forgotten, except in the way that we live our lives and the ways in which we teach our children to live their lives. That is their memorial.
the way that we are the church. He says they are men of mercy, whose righteous deeds have not been forgotten. With their descendants, verse 11, with their descendants it will remain a goodly inheritance to their posterity. Their descendants, and by the covenants their children, for their sake, their posterity will continue forever. People will declare their wisdom, and the congregation, the congregation proclaims their praise. So we give thanks for those who taught us the faith, those who baptized us, those who preached to us, those who taught us the spiritual songs, those who taught us how to worship, those who have gone before us in community and taught us how to live our lives as Christians. It is essential, it is essential that we remember them and that we celebrate that posterity that we have been given. And so we need to know what exactly is it that we've been given? What is this deposit of faith? How is it that we're supposed to live as Christians? And Jesus uh, summarizes that. He gives us a, a foundational way of understanding the life of faith and the Beatitudes, which are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, a kind of a peak in teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus comes forward. He goes unto this high place. He preaches to the straight crowd of people. And he preaches for, for three chapters, if you will. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. But all of them come out of, all of the particulars of the Sermon on the Mount come out of the seven Beatitudes. The seven Beatitudes are foundational principles of the way that we live a Christian life. And of course, the number seven you may have heard of before. It's kind of a popular number in Scripture. Maybe you've seen it. We see seven in many different ways. We see the three of heaven, and then we see the four of earth. And so we see three plus four to make seven, or we might see three times four to make twelve, another very popular number of scripture. You might have seen that occasionally throughout. And so these three and four, as numbered by St. Augustine, are very important. We start first with these three, which are attitudes by which we live our lives. An attitude or an ethos by which we expect change in the heart of the Christian. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first one is that we are supposed to be poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit means recognizing that I am not enough. I need God. This is completely antithetical to the, what the world says. The world says you're enough all by yourself. You're perfect just the way you are. This is not the case. That is a lie. We are uh, poor without God. We need His grace. We need His spirit. We need His mercy. We need His strength. He is creator God who has all life. Without him we are nothing. And as soon as we recognize that, we recognize our own poverty and our need for a savior. Next we mourn because we have recognized now the distance between God and us. We've recognized his magnificence and holiness and our lowliness. And we should grieve that distance. We should grieve our own sin and the sin of our neighbors. So we don't just grieve our sin, but we are actively grieving the sin of those around us. That keeps us on the freeway from when the guy cuts us off, um, cursing him and saying how awful he is, to mourning his sin, saying, I mourn the sin of my neighbor. I mourn that he is uh, not able to do what he needs to do, that he too is in need of a Savior and is lost. So we recognize our need for a Savior being poor in spirit. We mourn our sins, and then we are meek. Being meek means that we do not... Um, 
stand up and try to justify ourselves. So often when um, people point out our faults or when our faults are pointed out for us, when we come face to face with our own frailty, we try to justify ourselves, we try to make excuses for ourselves, we try to dismiss our problems, and meekness says we recognize and we accept our limited abilities. We say, yes, I am not enough. I, I, I'm not right. I'm not as wise as I should be. I'm not as powerful or as strong as I need to be. I'm not as insightful. I'm not as kind. I'm not as merciful. And to be meek is to simply accept that and to proclaim it and say, that is who I am. I have no way to defend myself. There is no defense. I'm completely, completely dependent upon my Savior. If we justify ourselves, we're saying, oh, I need a seizure for this, but not really for that. But to be meek is to say, I am completely dependent upon my Savior. So poor in spirit, recognizing we need in God, mourning for our sins, and then recognizing we are completely dependent upon Him in meekness. So those are the three conditions, spiritual conditions, ethos, of the human heart and Christianity. The next four actions, things that we do, ways that we live our lives. The first is, in verse 6, to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So this is us um, organizing our lives towards righteousness. It's what we desire, right? The things that we desire influence the way that we live our lives. If we desire money or prestige or power or recognition, that's how we're going to organize our priorities and live our lives. If we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that's how we're going to organize our lives. We're going to be waking in the morning, reading about righteousness. We're going to be spending our spare time thinking about righteousness. We're going to be thinking in the daytime, in the nighttime, about what it would be to be a righteous person. This is what's going to consume us and, and what's going to fill us with desire and organize the way that we live our lives. The second is that we're going to be um, merciful. Merciful. That means that we accept the mercy that God has given us by, by showing mercy to others. Forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We receive mercy in the way that we show it. And so we know that we need mercy. And so we are dedicating our lives to showing it. That means that we are waking up in the morning looking for opportunities to be merciful. Looking for opportunities to forgive. The third is to be pure in heart. And this, I have to say, is my favorite. Purity of heart, Kierkegaard says, is to will one thing, to will the will of God. Purity of heart is to will one thing, to will the will of God. That means that we are looking for His will. Because our will is convoluted, distorted, it's precarious, it changes back and forth. We change our minds so quickly and capriciously, but the will of God is steadfast and it is sure and it is faithful and strong. And when we seek God's will and we seek to unite our will to His will, then we become strong and steadfast and sure the way that He is. So we are pure in heart when we see and seek the face of God. And then the peacemakers are those who seek to have peace 
through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We, we want to make sure that there is nothing between us, that we are united in God, and that there is nothing that's going to keep us from coming to Him and to His altar. When we offer this morning to each other the kiss of peace, the handshake of peace, uh, this is not a kind of early um, fellowship time, right? When we say the peace of the Lord be with you, we're saying, forgive me my sins. Don't let anything come between us. Forgive me what I've done to you. Let nothing come between you and me and the Lord. Let me um, be forgiven. I forgive you so that we both can go to his altar and receive Holy Communion. Forgive me my sins. Be at peace with me. Right? We're saying, leave all of that behind so that we can come with a clear conscience to his altar. And so with the three attitudes of poverty, mourning, and meekness, we are ready now, our hearts have the right attitude so that our lives are organized for these four actions of hunger and thirsting, mercy, willing the will of God, and working for peace. And now we have our three plus our four for the totality of seven Beatitudes for the kingdom of God. And those that come after it, you'll notice, are the results. They're the consequences of if we live like that. Get ready for it. It's pretty exciting. Are you ready? The result of living with these seven attitudes is that we'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. <laughs> pretty exciting, huh? Huh? We should put this on some flyers and, and over the church, right? Come and be persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what we're being sold here. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely to my account. So not, thank goodness, because you have committed a sin and you suffer for that. No, because you're living righteously for God. And just like they condemned Christ falsely, we too will be condemned. It's a promise. When we have these seven Beatitudes, the promise is that we will be reviled for Christ's sake. And our response to that reviling is that we be rejoicing and glad. How do you do that? But by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the way that this looks, the way that this looks in practice was given, a vision of this was given to St. John on Patmos. You remember that St. John the Evangelist is the last of the apostles uh, to be alive. He's an elderly man. He's been imprisoned off of the coast of Asia Minor on this small island. He's in a cave with chains around his ankles and he is worshiping the Lord in prison on his day. On Sunday morning, he is praising and proclaiming the Lord's name. And while he is doing this, the whole heaven opens to him and he receives a vision from God. Now it's very important that we understand how this vision is revealed and what kind of a vision it is because uh, so often in this progressive understanding of Christianity uh, we've got this, you know, this linear time, this forward motion and, and so um, creation is left behind and, and the Christian church is left behind and it's almost this science fiction going off to heaven to some faraway place and that's not the way the scriptures talk about it. They talk about the kingdom of heaven being here and at hand and coming to us. Right? This is how it's described. As I look, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're coming. They're coming to Him. They're coming to creation. This is in Revelation chapter 7. This is after He has seen the twelve tribes come into the kingdom of heaven. Now He sees every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every color of person, all coming. And what unites us? What unites us is proclaiming the Lamb of God. Right? Whose blood has made us clean. Right? The Passover Lamb whose blood has made us clean and whose flesh sustains us for everlasting life. Right? And they fall on their faces and they worship Him before the throne. And then the elder says, Who are these people that come? Who are these that are washed in the blood of the Lamb? And it's told to us that they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. In chapter 7, verse 14. Again, about the same time, in about the 1860s and 1870s, that some progressives decided to take out the Deuterocanon from the King James Bible is when some of this ridiculousness of, um, of uh, millennialism became popular in America, where we'd have these thousand years of the kingdom of heaven and a thousand years of tribulation, a thousand years of the beast, and this nonsense that has never been the teaching of the Christian church. The teaching of the Christian church is that we are in the tribulation right now. And we don't have to look far to see persecution. In fact, if we're not looking at it, we're not praying for the persecuted church. We're not being the church. There are Christians right now, here today, that are being persecuted for their faith. And Christians all over the world. We are in the persecution now. And St. John is seeing those who have been coming through the persecution, through the tribulation, who have had their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? They've been set aside for Christ and they have, just as Jesus said in the Beatitude, they've been persecuted because of their lives of righteousness. And we see again and again this call from Genesis where the Lord desires to dwell with us, where the Lord desires to be with us, to surround us in His presence, that we would come around Him in the midst of the throne and that He will be our shepherd and that He will guide us to springs of living water. Now this is in the future, right? That God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the second coming when Christ finally comes again and He makes all things good. He makes all things new. And, and heaven and earth are completely joined together. And sin and death are completely destroyed. And this is the hope and the promise that we have been given. The hope and the promise that it is our responsibility to pass on to those that come after us. What kind of an inheritance will we give them? What kind of an inheritance are we giving to these small children in our midst? How will they remember us? Will they remember us as people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Will they remember us as people who are merciful? who were peacemakers, who gave up everything for the gospel. What kind of an inheritance have we been given? And what kind will we give?